0: I, I'm so overjoyed that we are gathering together again. We, we, we desperately need each other, amen? We desperately need each other. We all have fears, don't we? We all have fears. To be afraid is a very common experience. We might pretend that we're either tough guys or tough gals, but let's just pretend we all have fears, we all have anxieties, we all have thoughts that keep us up at night. One of my fears, for a long time, has been a fear of deep water. Anyone else have this fear? Fear of deep water. Whenever I was a teenager, I, I don't know how I developed this fear, but I've had it for a long time, I, I think it might have been developed. I, I was either 12 or 13, and I went deep sea fishing in the in the Gulf of Mexico with my dad, my brother, and my dad's friend. And so we we get in the, get in my dad's friend's boat, and we go off the, the coast miles, miles into the Gulf of Mexico, and so. Where we're at, you look around and there's no land. You can't see any land. And um, my dad's friends said to me and my brother, jump in. And so we did. And I don't remember if we had life jackets or not, but just to make the, the story more interesting, let's assume that we didn't, okay? And so me and my brother jump in the water and my dad's friend cranks the boat up and starts jetting off in the other direction. And I saw that boat get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I had this thought, wow, it would be very scary to be out at sea with no lifeboat, with no life jacket. And this this fear actually has a name. Psychologists, they, they give a lot of different fears, specific names. This specific fear is called Thalassophobia, thalassophobia, And many people We all have fears You might be Have arachnophobia A fear of spiders I think recently We've all been germophobes Fearful of germs There's also Some really unusual phobias There's a phobia Called Electo I don't know if I can pronounce this Electorophobia This is a fear of chickens And there's also anthophobia, which is a fear of flowers. I don't have those fears, but some people do. Regardless, we all have fears. We all have anxieties. And fear can oftentimes hinder our obedience to Christ. Fear is a hurdle that we must overcome in this life to obey the Lord. If you're looking for an interesting Bible study, you should investigate all of the references in Scripture where we are told to fear not. That is a very, very common command in the Bible, to to fear not. And the reason why that command is so common is because we are fearful. We are people who have fears and anxieties. And as with every other type of struggle we have in life, God cares about your fears. God cares about you. He cares about your fears. And he has provided us a way of overcoming and tackling and addressing our fears in life. God has not left us helpless. God has not left us to our own devices. God has given us a powerful tool. And once again, that tool is prayer. This morning's sermon is entitled, A Prayer for Boldness. We're going to be tackling this question. In life, we have fears. We all have fears. We all have anxieties. And God has provided us a means of addressing those fears and anxieties, and that is by means of prayer. When we are fearful and when we pray, how should we go about addressing the fears that we have? That's kind of the question that we're tackling this morning. Let's go ahead and turn to Acts 4. We will begin reading in verse 23. God wants us to be marked by boldness. God wants us, God wants his people, God wants the church, God wants you this morning, dear friend, dear Christian, God wants you to be marked by boldness. It is not a virtue to be cowardly. It is not a virtue to be afraid. Rather, the virtue is to be bold as a lion. That's what God wants from us. And when we are bold, when we have this characteristic of boldness, our lives will be effective. We will live effective lives witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we read the passage this morning... I I, I need to set the context a little bit. The context here in Acts 4 is that the disciples, Jesus in Acts 1, has ascended to heaven. And Jesus gave his apostles, his disciples, a command. And the command is that the disciples and apostles would be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in all the world. And Jesus ascends to heaven and he, pour, he sends his spirit and the spirit is poured out upon the church. And the church, the spirit empowers the church to witness. And as the apostles begin obeying Jesus' command to witness, there is, what do you know, there's hostility, there's opposition, there's persecution. And in Acts 4, we get one of the really early examples of this op- opposition Peter and John go out preaching the name of the Lord Jesus and the elders, the rulers in Jerusalem, tell them, stop doing that or we're going to harm you. So here we have really the beginning in Acts 4 of Christian persecution. Yet the disciples know and the early church knows that the church is called to bear forth witness to Christ regardless of circumstances. And in this passage, we have the prayer of the early church in light of this difficulty. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Beginning in verse 23. When they, the they here is Peter and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea... And everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Three observations, three points of application for you this morning. In light of this passage, in light of our fears, in light of prayer, how do we approach God in prayer when we are afraid? The first point of application is this. In your prayers, in light of fear, what you need to do first is you need to focus on the sovereignty of God. Focus on the sovereignty of God. This will be my longest point. What we see here is that the majority of this prayer is about God, is about His reign and rule. Look at how God is addressed at the beginning of this prayer. My translation says, Sovereign Lord. I believe the NIV says that. I don't think the King James and the New King James says Sovereign Lord. I, I believe the King James just says Lord. But I- anytime there is an important biblical component to a passage, you can always see different translations taking a different perspective. And what we have here, the the Greek word behind this title, the Greek word behind Sovereign Lord, is despotes. Despotes. Now, what English word does that sound like? Despot. A despot. Now, a despot, let me read, this is the English translation. This is the translation of, excuse me, not the translation. Confused. This is the definition of a despot. A despot is a ruler or other person who holds absolute power. Typically, one who exercises this power in a cruel or oppressive way. So that's what the English word despot means. Now that is not what the Greek word despotes means. But there is overlap. When the apostles, when the early church addressed God as despotes, what they are saying is that God is the ruler and commander of the universe. It does not mean that God is cruel or harsh. It does not mean that. What it means is that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. As we sang this morning, God has... No rival. God has no equal. Another way to translate this word "despates" is, is uh, the, the net translation. This is the translation that my beloved seminary has made. The net translation translates this word as master of all. The early church recognizes that even in the persecution, even in the difficulty, that God is in control of all of it. That everything that is playing out, all that they see, all of the difficulty, the persecution, the trial, the struggle, it is all a part of God's plan. God is in control, God is always in control amen, in the good and in the bad. And next notice what the early church does with this, starting in verse 25, the early church recognizes the word of God, and here we have a quote from Psalm 2, beginning in the second part of verse 25 and 26. This quote from Psalm 2 says this: "Who, why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed." Now, how is the early church using this passage? How is Luke using this passage here? Well, we get a clue in verse 27. Look at 27. Here you 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 have the beginning of verse 27, beginning with a four. For this 4, verse 27, is explaining what comes before it. And the explanation is this, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What the early church is doing here is they're re- reflecting on the Old Testament. They're reflecting on the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And what they are saying is that, Lord, what is happening right now, what is playing out in our midst in light of what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ and in light of what is happening to us, Psalm 2 is being fulfilled. Psalm 2 is being fulfilled. The the difficulty, the trial, has been planned ahead of time. What's happening in Acts 4 was foretold in Psalm 2. And what, happened, what was foretold in Psalm 2 was determined before time began. That's what the early church is saying here. That everything, all of the persecution and difficulty is playing out exactly how God had foretold. How God had, as we will see in a bit, predestined. It's all taking place in accordance with the sovereign will of God. Now let's look at verse 28. Verse 27 says that, for in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together many different people. Verse 28, quote, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. To understand this passage, to understand verse 28, what I want us to do is I want us to read the passage and I want us to see what is not there. I want us to read the passage and I want us to see what is not there. By the way, as you read scripture, one way to to understand scripture better is to read a passage and to ask the question, what is this passage not saying? To understand what it is saying, we need to ask the question, what it is not saying. So I want to use that that question here. What is is verse 28 not saying? It does not say this. Let's begin in verse 27. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. It does not say this. To do what their free will had determined to do. I want you to notice that verse 28 does not say this. To do whatever they had planned to do ahead of time. Verse 28 does not say that. Now Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people who plotted against Jesus and who are persecuting the early church. Verse 27 recognizes their guilt. Verse 27 recognizes their responsibility in the matter. But verse 28 places a theological emphasis not on them, Where is the theological emphasis in verse 28? Or or, or in other words, what is the ultimate reason why Acts 4 is happening? What is the ultimate reason, the ultimate theological reason, the reason that governs all of the other reasons? Based upon this passage, how do we answer that question? Well, the answer is the sovereign will of God. The answer is the sovereign will of God. The Bible teaches, dear friend, as illustrated by this passage, the Bible teaches that God predestines the salvation of his people. If you, if you study all of Scripture, what Scripture teaches with reference to your specific salvation, if, if you are a Christian this morning, the Bible says that the ultimate reason why you are a Christian is because God has predestined that to take place. That is what the Bible teaches about the believer's salvation. But the Bible also teaches the predestination of the history of redemption. Predestination is is not just a matter that, that stays excluded and only located within your own salvation. Predestination is a doctrine that extends to every event in human history. The reason why history plays out the way that it does, the reason why Acts 4 plays out the way that it does, the reason why the story of the Lord Jesus Christ played out the way that it does is because whatever God's hand and plan had determined to do so, that is what took place. That is what this passage is teaching. Ultimately, dear friend, God is in control. And the reason why God is in control is because human history is playing out in accordance with his predestinating decree. That is what this passage is teaching. That is how we can say, Sovereign Lord. That is how we can pray to God and ask Him to intervene in our lives because He is in control. He doesn't need us, He doesn't look to us to solve problems. The source of our encouragement and strength, dear dear friend, dear Christian, is not ourselves. It is God. And why is it God? Why is our hope found in God and God alone? Because he is in control. He is in control of the details. He is in control of the big events. He's in control of all of it. And this sovereignty, this belief, this bedrock conviction will give you courage. This bedrock conviction will give to you an inner strength, an ability to approach your fears because you know that God is in control of all things. To kind of illustrate this, let me share with you a little story from a pastor by the name of Joseph Tsan. Joseph Tsan was a Romanian pastor in Communist, the USSR, before the Iron Curtain fell. And this is the story of his belief in the sovereignty of God. In light of persecution, Romanian pastor Joseph Tsan recounted a time when he was being interrogated by six men. He said to one of them, What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. Rather, this is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know this. That you will do to me only what my God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further. Because you are only an instrument of my God. That's the type of conviction that will help you with your courage. If you are afraid of people if you are afraid of what people can say about you, what people can do to you, your hope is to focus on the absolute sovereignty of God. That, dear friend, not even a hair can fall from your head outside of the will of God. God is in control of all things. Next, we see from this passage that we, that we must ask God for courage. A belief in the sovereignty of God does not lead to inaction and passivity. A strong belief in the sovereignty of God does not lead to inaction and passivity. What we see here in the early church is that they extol God as being sovereign and king of it all. But they still act and they still respond to God with requests and desires. The second point is this from this passage, the second thing, the matter that we need to do is that we need to ask God for courage. In your fears, in your anxieties, as you pray, what you must do is you must ask God for courage. Looking at verse 29, this is where we get the request from the early church. So the early church starts with this prayer by exalting God, by focusing on his sovereignty. And then in verse 29, it says this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. There are two requests here. The first one is this. Look upon their threats. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. What what does this mean? I'm not exactly sure. What I I take it to mean, what what one commentator said about this passage, or about this part of the passage, is that what the early church is doing is they are relinquishing control. They're saying, God, listen, you got to take care of of what they're saying. you got to take care of what they're threatening us with. There is this, when you, when you see that God is in control, it allows you to relinquish your perceived control on the circumstances. And that's what the early church does here. They say, God, you got to take care of, of these people. We can't control them. You, you have to take care of them. And then they say this, Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness now understanding this passage in light of what it does not say it does not say this and grant to your servants safety and comfort verse 29 does not say and grant to your servants safety and comfort it does not say that what does it say And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The apostles knew that they had a mission. They knew that the Lord Jesus had given them a command to take the gospel to Pierce, South Dakota. And their desire to obey that mission was greater than their desire for leisure, comfort, and relaxation. What we see here is that the early church tackles what they're fearful of. The reason why they're praying for boldness is because they're tempted to not be bold. When we take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, there can and will be opposition. When that opposition comes, it can knock us on our heels. It can leave us frazzled. This is what the early church experienced. And so what they do in light of this context in which they're tempted to be fearful is that they step in that context and ask for the very thing That they're tempted to forsake. Which is boldness. They ask for boldness. Boldness is courage. Boldness is the ability to stand before people who do not like you. And to tell them what it is that God has asked you to say. That is boldness. Now with with some Christians... With some Christians, there, there is this kind of perpetual running on a hamster wheel. So we, we all have fears. We all have fears. Some Christians don't like addressing their fears. They don't like asking God for courage. They don't like to acknowledge the problem. So maybe for one year, five year, ten years, twenty years, forty years, there's this running on the hamster wheel of sanctification. Rather than addressing to God their fears, having the courage to ask for courage. By the way, it, it, it takes courage to ask for courage because when you ask for courage, you acknowledge that you do not have it. So rather than stepping out in faith and and addressing the problem, addressing the fear, addressing that anxiety that has weighed them down for so long, they run the hamster wheel. And this problem is never addressed. And dear friends, I want you to see that the calling of a Christian is not towards passivity, the calling of Christianity is to not be passive about your fears. If you have fears, if you have fears that you have had for a long time and you have not tackled them, you are on that hamster wheel. And what the, what the Lord wants you to do instead is to come to God, to, to acknowledge the fear, to acknowledge what it is that has for so long hindered your obedience, and to ask God to help you have courage. for you to move out of inactivity and passivity towards action and in addressing the problems and the fears in your life coming to god and saying god please help me to live a life of boldness help me to be not fearful lord lord help me to not be timid father help me to address the fears in my life head on And then, Lord, I I pray for boldness. We have to ask God for courage. We have to come to God and tell Him our fears. Tell Him how deliberating, I don't think that's the right word, dehabilitating there we go. We have to tell the Lord how debilitating our fears are and how they weigh us down and lead us to jump on this hamster wheel. Maybe for years, maybe for decades. Dear friend, with your fears, ask God for boldness. Ask God for courage. Don't be passive about that. Step off the hamster wheel and get on your knees before God. The last observation, the last point of application from this passage is this. Pray with expectation. First point was focus on the sovereignty of God. Second was to pray for courage. And the third point is to pray with expectation. What I mean by this is that as you ask God to help you with your fears... Believe that he will. As you ask God to help you, believe that God will help you. Pray with an expectation that God will answer your prayers. Verse 30 While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 30 isn't a request, it is an expectation. And the expectation is this. Verse 29, there is this request for courage. And verse 30 is the expectation of verse 29 being fulfilled. And as verse 29 is being fulfilled, there will also be signs and wonders. So the early church believes that God will hear them. And then verse 31, this is the result of their prayer. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. What did they ask for? Boldness. What is it that God gives them? Boldness. God supplies, dear Christian, what you lack in your obedience to Christ, God supplies us with. God answers prayer. That is the hope that we have. And as we pray for boldness, as we pray for boldness, what we must do is we must step out in faith. As we pray for boldness, what we must do is we must step out in faith. What we ought not to do is to pray for boldness and just wait around to feel bold. What we ought not to do is p- to pray for courage and then just wait around until we feel like we're bold. That doesn't work. God supplies what you need in the moment. Once again, we, we cannot be passive. We cannot be inactive. We must make steps of faith, believing that God will provide us what it is that we need. So a funny illustration of, of, of Living a life in which you just wait around for God to give you these certain feelings until you obey Him. Walter Houston, 91, dies waiting for the will of God. Walter was described by family members as a devoted Christian. He died on Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him a clear direction about what to do with his life. Ruby, his wife, said he hung around the house and prayed a lot, but he just never got that confirmation. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back, quote, because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way. Ruby says he was very sensitive to always wanting to remain in God's will. That was primary for him. Friends say they like Walter, though he seemed to not capitalize on his talents. To his credit, they say, Houston, who worked mostly as a handyman, was able to pay off the mortgage from Clopton Capital on the couple's modest home in just a few years. Walter had a number of skills he never got around to using, says longtime friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with Wood and had a storyteller side to him as well. I always told him, take a risk. Try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting God down. This story is not actually real. Walter Houston is not a real person. But this story is believable, isn't it? Some of us might struggle with passivity more than others, but there is this temptation towards obeying when we feel like it or stepping out of faith when we feel like we have the courage. We can't do that. That could lead you to a whole life of ineffectiveness. Ineffectiveness. I think of some of the saddest stories that people have Think about living your life and never making an impact in this world How horrible is that? To have an impact in this world, dear Christian To live a life that is effective To make a difference To obey the Lord Jesus Christ We have to live lives That take on risk And we have to pray our prayers for boldness. Expecting that God will supply us with what we need. And I am not sure what it is, what fears you struggle with. As I said at the beginning, we all have fears. My fears opening myself up to you. My fears largely surround caring too much about what people think. As a pastor, that's a very easy sin to fall into. And as I begin to inflate and focus too much upon what people's opinions, what happens is that there is fear and anxiety that bubbles up in my heart. And that people become very big and God becomes very small. And so I must ask the Lord that he would help me to to not fear man but to fear him ultimately and ask him to give me the courage to address and approach my fears I I am a fearful person and you are too dear friend and my questions to you is what are the fears in your life that prevent your obedience what are the fears in your life that are hindering your effectiveness for Christ Is it fear of evangelism? When it comes to evangelism, are you very cowardly? Are there people in your life who you know that you need to have conversations with about the truth, about the gospel, and you've known this for years, but you haven't done this? Is it some other conversation that you're dreading that you know you need to have? speaking the truth in love? Is it a fear of failure? Do you not step out and take risks because you fear you'll fail? Is it a fear of rejection? Do you fear people not liking you? Is it death? Are you afraid to die? Dear friends, whatever fears you have, God cares about. God cares about you. His heart for you is that you would obey him. And what it is that God demands of us is what it is that God supplies. If you need courage, if you need boldness, God's heart is open To you. And what you must do in light of this passage is you must focus on the sovereignty of God. Remember that God is in control of all of the details. God is in control of those people who you fear not liking you. What can man do to you? If God is for you, who can be against you? And as you struggle, pray for courage. Pray that God would show up in your life in a powerful way. Get off the hamster wheel, get on your knees and ask God, beg God to give you boldness. And then, lastly, step out in faith. Step out in faith. Don't wait around for the feelings to conjure up. Step out in faith, expecting that God will provide what you need and in the exact moment that you need it. Our God reigns, He has no rival, He has no equal. Dear friend Christ, dear Christian, God is for you. The Christian life is risky. Praying is risky, but it is worth doing. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. I pray, Lord, for the edification of the saints. God, I pray that by means of your grace and your love, that you would grant us the, the courage that we need. We confess, Lord, that we are cowards. We confess that, Lord, in our hearts, we cower away from the things that we fear. Father, we, 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 we confess that so often our, our, our fears hinder our obedience. Oh, Lord, I pray for the dear saints. I pray, Lord, for the edification, Lord, that we would all have this conviction that we must come to you and address our fears. We must get off the hamster wheel. And, Father, we must ask you for courage. And we must expect that you will give it Father, for the non-Christian, challenge them in their conscience. Convict them of their sins. Bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for, for the Christian, Father, build us up. Pour out your grace upon us so that we might live lives of boldness for you. I pray these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.